Why in the past decade has BRL Equine become the premier equine supplement company in the industry? Because we spend millions in research and development before we ever put out a product. Because we use only FDA supervised facilities to manufacture for us. Because what we say is in them is in them. Because they work. Because if you're not happy, I'll give you your money back. And because top trainers and veterinarians in thoroughbred racing, standard bred racing, three-day eventing, and barrel racing all trust in BRL Equine. Shouldn't you? To find out more how Flexify HA, Unlock, Bleeder Shield, and EPO Equine can help you, contact me, Joseph Volante, 215-501-6880. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Going in Circles Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Sony Circles. We'll try it again. We may be having an issue here. I don't know if you can hear me or not. Hello, everyone. <laughs> try this again. All right. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I was speaking into the wrong side of the mic. The technical issues were mine. <laughs> well, uh, the Derby is over. The Oaks is over. The Preakness is... Well, it's uh, less than two weeks away now, and um, we're going to talk about that stuff a little bit later on in the program with uh, Pete Denk of uh, uh, THT Bloodstock. Him and his partner, Kerry Thomas, put out... Uh, um, among other things that they do, they put out a, a derby guide every year that kind of analyzes the the field from a, a psychological standpoint. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, you know how things fared uh, Saturday. Uh, personally, it, it went pretty much. <laughs> I, I think I hit on about sixteen out of the nineteen horses. There was three horses I, I was wrong. Medina Spirit. I just I did. I didn't. Uh, I kind of overestimated his ability to get in position. He just didn't have enough early speed. I don't know that the rail really was a problem, but uh, he just couldn't uh, get close enough. And and you know he's run a couple clunkers, and and that was one of them. And um, uh, his entry mate um, as well. Uh, he didn't really run too much, but uh, I mean the race kind of played out like we had talked about. It's been a long time of banging on the the drum for. Horses need two-turn experience. They need experience, period. Um, and they need to, you know, to be toughened up a little bit. And the horses that finished one, two, three, four, five all had the requisite uh, amount of experience. And it matters. It's it matters in the Kentucky Derby more than any other race. It's not it's not like the other races we run in this country anymore. It's it's a throwback race, and you can't just uh, take the fresh horse angle. It just doesn't work just doesn't work. Um, but, um, you know, that, that's in the rear view mirror and, uh, the field is, is starting to, uh, to gel for, for, uh, the Pimlico race, uh, the Preakness, <laughs> um, today, essential quality was declared, uh, out of that race. He's going to be pointing to the Belmont, uh, Brad Cox, Cotto river, who wasn't, uh, one of Mr. Cox's runners in the Derby may, show up for the Preakness. He's not quite sure. Mandaloon as well, uh, the runner-up in the the Derby, uh, is in consideration for the Preakness. Obviously, the winner, Medina Spirit, will be in Baltimore, provided nothing happens between then and now. Um, also, concert tour from uh, Mr. Baffert's barn will be joining the fray. And uh, it kind of uh, it kind of changes things with if Cotto River and Concert Tour both race in the Preakness as they were last seen in Arkansas dueling on the lead, uh, dueling each other into defeat, basically. Um, so 
adding them to the mix, especially when Baffert just won the Kentucky Derby with a horse that was on the lead, it, it really kind of makes things interesting. And, and in my opinion, if that happens, you're going to see more horses run. I, I think you're going to see guys take shots because they're going to say, well, yeah, the Derby was won in a wire-to-wire fashion, but wow, with these horses in, there's going to be a lot of pace, and, and certainly uh, there'll be other people that might otherwise have passed maybe take a shot um ron bauer i apologize to mr ron bauer um you made the right decision your horse would not have won the kentucky derby you might have got the obezos trip and been fifth and the way things are working out um maybe this is uh this is the race where, where he can step up and uh especially if, if we get some sort of uh some sort of speed duel so the Preakness is uh, a week from this Saturday, and it, it's hard to believe. Um, you know, last year we, we had that odd circumstance of the Derby being run in September and the Belmont being run in June and the Preakness being run a month after the Derby. And uh, so, so now we're back to a little bit of uh, normality, and, and um, it, it'll make it, uh, it, it'll, you know, be, be a little more, uh, you know, like we're used to. And, uh, you know, the, it's still kind of a, a again. The Preakness is a little bit of a throwback race in that uh, it's run two weeks after the Derby, and and you just do not see top class horses, uh, let alone uh, e- even the lower class horses. You just don't see horses coming back in two weeks. So that is, of course, a factor. Um, it hasn't been a huge factor. The the bouncing back out of the race. There's been a lot of success in the last uh, a decade or so of horses that run well in the Derby often run well in the Preakness and. Um, I, I think that has to be considered, uh, the toughness of the horses, um, you know, to be able to, to survive the grind of the Derby trail, then survive the Derby trail, the Derby itself. You saw where rock your world was, uh, eliminated at the start. Um, and he was a horse that was very, very lightly experienced. And, and it, perhaps if he had 10 starts, it wouldn't have mattered, uh, because it threw him off of his style. But, you know, we're assuming that he has to be on the lead because he only had one dirt race and he was on the lead in that race. So that's the thing. The, without um, without any uh, experience, we don't even hardly know something about those those uh, really lightly raced horses. And um, it, it's again, it, it's it's a different race. It's not like the other races. It just isn't. And um, you know, we'll see. But. Uh, it's it's shaping up like a like a pretty good uh you know pretty good triple crown and and Medina Spirits uh I mean he's a good horse he's a solid horse he 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 might be able I mean he's won both of his races uh, going long on the lead um so that certainly is going to be uh uh something for the handicappers to try to uh to figure out if uh we do get all that speed uh that might be signed on for the for the Preakness um there was a uh, you know the Oaks was was kind of a a, um, a reunion. Johnny V and Todd Pletcher, who for years and years and years were um, uh, you know linked at the hip. Uh, Johnny V rode first call for Todd for over a decade, um, and he rode Malathat to to. Um, to, to beat search party in the Oaks. And, and honestly, it was a, a classic Johnny V ride. Um, Malathat got squeezed a little bit coming out of there and it was a 13 horse field, a big field. And he pushed her through and got her into position. Uh, had he not done that, there's a, a good chance that Malathat would have not uh, been able to rally to win the Oaks. But uh, I mean, there's a reason that Johnny V is uh, Johnny V and, he he did an uh, you know an, an excellent job getting her in position and uh, you know his ride on uh, Medina Spirit in the Derby was was masterful as well. I mean uh, you know we kind of thought maybe his uh, he was fading into the twilight of his career a little bit and then he goes and he wins the Oaks in the Derby on back to back days and both with uh, tremendous rides. So it was a win for the old guys. Um, speaking of uh, old guys, not you, Steve. Um, uh, <laughs> We have with us Mr. Scrunchy uh, from the Florida HVPA. Steve, a um, lot of goings on down here in Florida concerning the uh, the Florida legislature and the the never ending uh, capades with the uh, 
gambling in, in this state, and uh, this year is, is no different. <laughs> uh, more chaotic than most years, for sure. Yeah, so the Florida legislation for people, uh, the legislature for people who haven't been paying attention to, to Florida politics concerning gambling is uh, they're going to have a special session uh, May 17th to take up um, the compact that was uh, kind of uh, decided between uh, the governor and the, uh, the Seminole tribe um, concerning sports betting at casinos and, and some other things and, um, and, and all the other gambling legislation, of course, which racing is involved in. So, Steve, why don't you uh, give a little quick uh, explanation of, of, of what's going on in concerns with to, to racing South Florida especially and, and where we stand? Well, there are three uh, bills that were all uh, went through the uh, the Senate. Uh, one was to establish a gaming commission, uh, which I believe, uh, in part, would essentially do away with the uh, division of paramutual wagering. <clears throat> um, and then uh, the other bill was really centered around uh, decoupling, uh, and it allowed, of course, all the dogs are decoupled by way of Amendment 13 of last year. Uh, and then it gives all the other permit holders the right to decouple, which would be high lie, uh, and standard breads. Uh, and then it, it, it mandates that the thoroughbred uh, permit holders have to stay coupled. Um, so, you know, at a glance, that sounds good for thoroughbred uh, you know, all of us in, in the thoroughbred uh, world. Uh, but what it really does is, you know, it, it really creates a, a lot of disparity between, you know, the couple tracks and now uh, the decouple tracks. Um, currently, we get 10% of the gross gaming revenue from the casino at Gulfstream Park. Uh, you know, they don't have a, a big operation, but it brings us anywhere in a good year, seven million on an average year, five or six million. Uh, this is all, uh, you know, uh, pre-pandemic. So, um, you know, there's really not a, a lot of incentive for uh, Gulfstream Park mainly to continue to be, you know, a casino, keeping it operated when the casinos, you know, the other casinos can now take that extra ten percent and. They don't have to pay for uh, high light. They don't have to pay for uh, dog racing. So there's added money for them by way of operations that they save. And they also don't have to pay the horsemen the 10%. So it's a big swing. And, Chuck, as you know, we have the Big Easy down the street, you know, and they could use that money to market, to rebate, you know, to do a lot of things to lure the slot players over to their facility uh, so in the end, I think the horsemen will end up paying the price. I think the uh, the amount of money that we end up getting from Gulfstream Park will either go away or get very small. It also uh, de-incentivizes them from uh, building a bigger casino, which is something that we've been working on and talking about through the last two years. So um, from a casino uh, standpoint, that's really what the bill, uh, you know, the Senate Bill 780 does, and there's an, a companion House bill that pretty much mirrors the Senate bill. So, and the uh, the uh, casino that you, you referred to is, is, you know, the old Hollywood dog track, which is literally, what, a mile away from Gulfstream Park. And uh, I don't know, outside of Las Vegas or Atlantic City, anywhere you're going to see uh, two casinos uh, within uh, you know that that close of, of range, and of course you know the Seminole casinos uh, over over on uh, by the Florida Turnpike west of Gulfstream, I and they're only ten miles away too. So there's a, a lot of competition for for that uh, that slot dollar. Well, I'm going to jump over to the compact. The compact allows uh, the Seminoles to build three more Vegas style casinos right on the same reservation. And I don't remember. I know Wynn was one of the companies they were talking to. I think Caesars was one, and maybe, uh, I don't know, MGM was the other. So they're going to create a little Hollywood strip there. 
that's going to be problematic for us in a lot of ways, no matter you know what we build and how nice it is. Right. Yeah, it's kind of kind of be like a, a mini Vegas strip of sorts, and well, with additional gaming, you know, that we can't offer, you know, all the, you know, the house bank games and the slots and a lot of things that you've probably read about that the, this new compact offers to them. Sure, because I mean, essentially, at, at the non-seminal um, casinos, it's mostly just slots that are offered, and they have some of those. Um, uh, the the video poker and things like that, but I mean it's it's not like uh, you know like all the traditional table games that you would see in in a Vegas style casino. No, uh, no, but you'll uh, you know the compact talks about you know what they can do and how big, but they, it'll be you know an exclusive throughout the state. Um, you know what was important to a lot of the northern permit holders was protecting designated player games which was a trade-off um, in part on behalf of the paramutuals for the compact, but that's something that's really not existing here. And if you read the compact, it severely limits our ability, the Broward Miami-Dade uh, facilities, the eight, collectively the eight of us, what we can offer in designated player games. Uh, you know, up north it's 30 tables, here it's 10. Um, so it's really not a big, a big mover for us in any way. Right. It's, a, it's honestly, Chuck, it's a... It's a, it's a terrible deal and a terrible situation for us. This compact, you know, if you jump over the sports gaming, let's just assume, you know, legally it gets through, uh, which is a whole different conversation. But, you know, they're going to be the hub. They're going to be the house for the whole state of Florida. They're pretty much uh, by operation going to regulate the permit holders. They only have to give three permit holders uh, a contract within the first three months. If they don't. Uh, their rate goes up 2%, which equates to about $2.4 million. So you do the math. What would they rather do, create competition or uh, or pay the two points? And then it says in good faith that they'll work with the other permit holders to uh, to offer us sports gaming. So, you know, that could take forever. And by the time, you know, we would get it, you know, if you look at the compact, it really uh, protects them. I don't know what they have, they're worried about. They, being the tribe, is worried about, from competition from us, but there's a lot of, you know, other restrictions there that's put on Miami and Dade County uh, permit holders uh, that really makes it almost impossible to uh, to operate. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that makes it really difficult. I mean, you're basically tying, you know, your hand, hand behind your back. And uh, I know when the initial compact uh, news was released, there was a lot of uh, on social media, there was a lot of um, uh, you know gambling analysts that were, were shocked at the uh, seemingly lack of, of value in this deal from the state's point of view, and that they, uh, you know, when compared to um, like what's going on in New York, which is is trying to, you know to pass uh, legislation, and and they have of course their own, um, uh, I think the Oneida Nation uh, uh, Indians are. are, are are filing suit against the the state, but it just seems like they they gave them everything, um, <laughs> and and really aren't getting nearly what uh, you know what they should be getting back. Uh, it, it's a terrible deal for five hundred million dollars a year. I mean, I don't even know what the tax base would be on that money if those properties just sat outside the reservation and you had hotel tax. Uh, you know, sales tax and all the other taxes that go along with it. And the, the, you know, the tax rate we're paying, remember, is 35% on uh, slot revenue. Um, you know, their their rate goes from, you know, from 17 and a half and it, it slides down depending on how much money. So they're already cut it in half to begin with. So you would think if, you know, those, you know, let's say MGM and Wynn and Caesars built the Vegas-style casino in an area that was outside of the reservation, um, and they had all the same rights that they've seemed to be extending through the compact to the tribe. You know, I can't imagine uh, on a statewide basis that the you know, 500 million would just be the tip of the iceberg as to uh, tax generate. I mean, what this compact basically does is it really just uh, sells. Um, I hate to say sells out, but just basically, you know, sells. The whole future of gaming in, in, in Florida to the Indians in exchange for a tax base. 
Yeah, just uh, and you know, in the grand scheme, people say, "Well, five hundred million dollars—that's that's, that's a lot of money." Well, if you just look at how much money is bet in some of the states, uh, the sports betting wise, and, and it's is you know in its infancy. Of course, sports betting has been around forever, but this is a new you know a new way of doing it. You don't have to to bet with uh, you know uh, Guido down uh, in the in the bar at, on the corner. This this is you know this is a corporate sports book, and and there's uh, I, I think uh, I read a couple days ago the six states that had legalized sports betting last year for the entire year, there was something like $20 billion bet. And uh, most of those states, I, I think New Jersey was really the only state that had any sort of uh, population comparison to, to you know what Florida has. I mean, Florida's got, what, 22 million people living here, and it's a tourist destination. Um, so uh, the sports betting component... Um, you know, part of uh, uh, luxury, um, you know, like paramutual facilities, or, or you know, going down and and, and going to one of these, um, uh, you know, Vegas style places that they're going to build on, on the reservation. It just seems like, it, it just seems like it, it's just not that much money. Oh, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. Um, so, with that said, uh, what else does the decoupling do other than? Um, kind of take some money out of the purse account. Um, what about in regards to dates? I mean, obviously, if we're going to lose a, a, a chunk of money, then we probably aren't going to be able to continue to run quite as many dates as we have. Is there is there any talk about, is there some sort of uh, requirement? Uh, because, you know, we ran the 40 days at Calder, uh, or Gulfstream Park West, for what, the last five or six years, when no one really wanted to run 40 days, we went from uh, four days a week all summer to five just because the statute said we had to run 40 days for uh, Churchill to keep their casino license over at Calder. So, um, you know, are we going to see some date kind of uh, a date reduction of some sort? It seems inevitable. Um, so let's back up a little bit by contract, uh, our contract with. Uh, uh, CDI uh, expired at the end of 2020, and uh, they no longer had to pay us um, a share of their casino money. Uh, they were coupled with um, thoroughbreds, and that was, you know, that permit was a thoroughbred permit. So, you know, I think uh, our group always thought, uh, and it was before my time, and I remember your time, thought, you know, that they would always have to be coupled to the thoroughbred permit and, and they would have to continue to pay us, they being Churchill down. So we got, uh, you know, maybe over $9 million, close to $10 million a year. So take the $10 million, take the 6 or $7 million, you know, that's roughly about 20% of our purses. So if it all goes away, and the Churchill Downs money has gone away, uh, they were paying 10%. Um, and I'll get to you know the deal that we've uh, the uh, temporary deal that we've put in place with them in a second, but you know so if you take twenty million out of our purse account twenty per, excuse me twenty percent out of our purse account, you know right now um, you know our purses aren't great to begin with you know we look at what's going on around the country um, you know we see you know, Kentucky with the HHR and New York, what it's doing with slots and, you know, gaming and, you know, their purses are just going higher and higher and higher. So, you know, it's inevitable that ours are going to go down unless we find out how to uh, figure out a different way to infuse money into our purse account. Um, it's like a pizza, you know, there's only so many slices you can cut it up before it's, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller. So if we have to spread out less money over the same amount of days, you know our purses will be uh, they'll be back in the the bad days of uh, Calder, right. and uh, we won't be able to attract horsemen. So, I I think, you know, yes, I think, uh, you know, maybe we'll get surprised in special session. I know that, um, you know, the president, Senate President Simpson is is high on the compact. Obviously, Governor DeSantis is is high on the compact, and you know, hopefully. Uh, Speaker uh, uh, Sproles will give it a good look, and um, you know maybe we'll be able to get some 
some some pushback. You know, what we went in and asked for was a tax reduction um, to uh, Gulfstream Park on their uh, slot revenue. We're at 35. We asked for initially to go to zero if they stayed couple, uh, and then we tried to get it maybe 10 or 15 percent, so re reduced down to 20 or 25 percent. Um, but that has fallen on deaf ears. Um, and then if you read the compact, it strictly prohibits a, a tax reduction to any permit holders in Broward and Dade uh, until 2023, and it's capped at 5%. So that's pretty much a dead-end road. You know, they, they, we've requested that they waive the paramutual tax that we pay, which is about $5 million a year. Uh, that hasn't really been heard. We requested a purse pool, some money that comes out of the compact that gets split up between, you know, the breeders and Tampa and us that, you know, helps subsidize what's going on here. Um, that hasn't helped us. Uh, that hasn't really been heard. Um, and it's almost, you know, I have to say, you know, I know as a horseman I'm not supposed to be um, pro-decoupling, but it's almost put Gulfstream Park in a really dis, uh, at a disadvantage. You know they were you know pretty good all the way through this, where they didn't mind staying coupled as long as they'd get some concessions that would pretty much even the playing field, and they've gotten nothing. So you know they're in a pretty uh, uh, bad predicament at this point. You know you know I I don't I don't expect them to do anything now but to fight to be decoupled. And I know that doesn't sound good, uh, but I think inevitably um, it's all the same. You know, whether they're coupled or decoupled, unless the economics change, you know, we're still in the same spot we're going to be if this compact goes through the way it is. Yeah, it, it was kind of um, disheartening that they wouldn't consider uh, the fact that Gulfstream was willing to stay coupled to, to keep an industry um, that uh, th that's been you know a strength in the state of Florida between the you know the breeding uh, the sales the all, all the the horses uh, you know the the farms in, in Ocala and uh, I mean let's not forget they bet two billion dollars at Gulfstream last year it's not like an an insignificant amount of money um, and it, it it's uh, it, it is it's just disheartening that uh, we just have so little power and and the Seminoles and um, you know, ha have so much. Obviously, you know, those with the biggest wallets are going to be the strongest in, in any kind of uh, uh, political situation. But uh, it was it was a little interesting to me uh, that Disney really never seemed to have checked in at all. I, I really thought when the sports betting um, legislation got serious in the state of Florida, that, that Disney, as the owner of ESPN, which I think has done a deal. Um, a couple years ago with Caesars maybe um, you know to, to try to uh, you know jump in like Fox Sports has done with Naira bets and and how they're trying to you know jump in on a sports betting craze and uh, they, they were very very quiet about it. I mean I, I haven't I never saw the word Disney uh, at one time so I guess uh, um, you know they're not involved at all not that they would be on on our side but um, yeah it, it does it, it's just disheartening that uh you know they wouldn't even consider concessions, concessions such as uh, tax decreases for Gulfstream. Considering, like you said, they would still be uh, promoting uh, an agribusiness and, and and a business that's that's you know done really a lot for the state. And the numbers are very very small con compared. Um, it's not like it would cost the state a tremendous amount of money. It's not like uh, the Gulfstream Park Casino is handling nine hundred million dollars and it was going to cost the state uh, you know. Seventy-five million dollars by by lowering the tax rate. It it just it seems you know almost it seems, it seems punitive, Chuck. Yeah, you know, it, it almost does. seems like they're penalizing them, and uh, it's really it, it's unfair. And you know, I I know I've spoken to uh, Belinda Strike, you know, Craig Fravel, all their people over there, and they they're just uh, they're astonished uh, that uh, they're being uh, kind of singled out in this bill and then like you know, again if you look at the compact it gets worse as you get into you know the two counties that uh, dade miami dade and broward i mean it's even more stringent against the permit holders um 
and it just doesn't make any sense. The other thing that we have, you know, there's 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 language in there that um, the tribe has to consent to moving permits, but what it does is it carves out the ability uh, for a permit to move uh, within Broward or Dade County with outside of 15 miles from the um, uh, the Hollywood uh, uh, location. So. If you you know you do the math on that and you you measure as the crow flies you know yeah. where the fountain blue is and where the where Durrell is, you know those are exceptions uh, for those two facilities. So you know what could happen is uh, the dormant permit at the Big Easy could go over to Fountain Blue, you know, and assuming you know I, I know all the the issues with that, and then another permit could make its way over to Durrell. So the Big Easy isn't going anywhere, which would give us a little bit of relief locally. Right. Um, it just, like I said, there really just isn't anything in this for us, um, and it's uh, uh, it's even worse than that. It hurts us. So as horsemen, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, you know, you probably saw recently uh, when our contract expired with uh, Churchill Downs, we talked last time, I think, about we have a couple of lawsuits that are in the appellate court. Uh, one was for them tearing down the grandstand, and the other was for, you know, wrongfully or improperly converting their permit from thoroughbred to highlight, which would have basically, uh, if we if we won, would have uh, uh, reestablished that where we- that revenue stream that I talked about, the nine to ten million. But decoupling, that's all going to go away because of that. Uh, I've had, uh, to my surprise, I've had uh, many many conversations with Bill Costanjan. You know, he understands the sensitivity. Of Florida racing, uh, you know, he's a smart guy. He understands that it's vital to their ADW platform and for the time of year. So uh, we're trying to find a solution uh, where they continue to pay us, um, and we're trying to also find a solution through ADWs and getting uh, additional money. We first started with the bill, but you know, again the. The players down south here, I shouldn't say down south in Florida, just we just couldn't get aligned. So we're trying to do it by contract. Um, and those look promising. So, you know, I, I think we're going to have some money come in, and I think we're going to be okay. But what it looks like at the end of the day, you know, maybe we get back to where we started, you know, that 15 or $16 million that we're losing, we're going to pick up from the ADW side. But it puts us right back where we are now. And, you know, it was our hope to – Increase purses and try to get them at a level where maybe where New York is, you know, for you know a lot of their allowance and made in special weight, so we could just be a little bit more competitive. You know, I'll be honest. I really think that that we need to get ahead of the curve and restructure some of the dates and the the racing that we run down here because now, I mean, we are down to one track. We don't have uh, the two months that Calder gave the the turf course a break and and. Um, and I know they're trying, you know, they're talking about the synthetic, and and I'll be honest, I, I think that's a, I think they're wasting their money, but uh, I think you, like if you look at the Keeneland meet and the lack of horses at a meet like that, and I think what you're going to see at Churchill in the next couple of weeks, and you're going to see at other tracks all over the country, that there was a little bit bigger loss of horse flesh during the COVID situation than, than was we maybe, you know, knew about because uh, some of the tracks had had, um, uh, you know, a big forced break for a while. Uh, and then when they did come back, there wasn't as much racing as there normally would be. And, and it looks like, um, and, and we don't have any national programs that monitor these type of things, which is a real weakness for our sport. But, I think that that the horse population um, is going to be a real struggle to keep up, and down here with our issues with uh, you know purse sizes versus New York and 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 Kentucky in particular, um, you know I, I think that uh, you know maybe uh, looking at, at at trying to uh, you know you know pair back uh, maybe create some. Um, a little bit of time off here, a little bit of time off there uh, between meets. I mean, we think about it. We, we race 51 weeks a year. The only time off we have uh, for the last, you know, going on a decade was that uh, 
that period of time between the end of Calder and, and the beginning of the championship meet in, in December. So uh, that that may be somewhere where, you know, like you said, we, we can chop some of the dates off, which might help uh, uh, prop up the purses as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, as a matter of fact, on Saturday, Sunday or Saturday, Billy and I, Badgett and I met, um, and we talked about putting together a model uh, that, you know, what it would look like, let's say, if we had 200 race days or 190, and we tried to do what uh, you just described, you know, take a couple of weeks off here, a couple of weeks off here, and see what it looks like. Um, the big, you know, uh, for me, the biggest concern is one of the lures about being, one of the trade-offs, I should say, about accepting purses that will lower here in South Florida is because you're able to stay here all year long. And, you know, Chuck, you would know better than I do. You've traveled as a trainer through your whole career, uh, and I know that has to be difficult. So I, I know when this whole uh, one-track uh, 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 state, or I should say, you know, when we called her, went away, you know, the lore for a lot of trainers was, hey, you know what, you can stay in Florida all year. You know, maybe some of the purses aren't as high, but they're decent. You don't have to travel. You know, I, I think it's going to be difficult to see our, you know, if we have big pockets because the horse population is going to leave, are they going to come back? I mean, look what happens this time of year up north when all the tracks are open and, you know, you were up there in Kentucky or even so the mid-Atlantic. I mean, you can go to, you know, Pimlico, New York, you know, Delaware, there's a lot of options up there for those horses to move about. So sure. I don't know if those horses are going to stay here. If they don't stay here, they're going to come back. And if they do come back, you know, they're not going to come back in September. You know, they might come back in November to, you know, enjoy the championship meet like the old days to get a little early start. But, you know, I don't know how you're going to lower those horses back here in the spring, in the fall. In the fall. Yeah, no, and, and that's that's a, it's a good point. And uh, you know, there's there's probably a way to do it, but I think one of the great unknowns is that um, it it's not like we know how many horses are actually out there. You know, we don't know. We can't say, all right, there's fourteen thousand horses that are three and up that, that are uh, you know available to race, and six thousand are going here, and three thousand are going here, and two thousand are going here, because it, it's kind of like you said, it, it, it's you know people move and they go where the the racing is, and that and that's one of the advantages of being up north. But by the same token, um, as we've seen in in a, in a kind of a, a, a situation where uh, a, a certain trainer that's that's at Goldstream year round now because uh, she was trying to go back to Monmouth, and and last year they, you know, she just ran out of town too much and and the tracks are going to circle the wagons up north uh they're not going to allow people to ship out to other tracks like they do as as as, as often as they do just because uh you know they're gonna say hey listen you're stabled here and and it costs a lot of money to maintain the track it costs a lot of money to uh, uh keep the lights on and insurance and all that and and you know you got to support our program and um, you know, it, it's 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 a difficult situation because the tracks have not really, um, you know, the, the tracks do business as usual, uh, and, and the whole sport does business as usual in a lot of ways. Um, but the horse population issue is, is one that 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 exists, and uh, you know, we're just not, um, you know, we we just haven't quite figured out how to shed the days properly because if you think about 15 20 years ago the full crop was 33 34,000 and nowadays it's it's 19 18 and god knows what it's going to be um you know for for last year I, I don't even you know i don't even know um because you know covid has started in in late march and uh i mean who knows how many people like literally just you know said hey we don't know what's going to happen i mean people forget like now it seems like uh, you know, like everything's okay, but you know, a year ago at this time, everybody was kind of panicking. I mean, nobody really knew what to do. We we were keeping racing alive down here by by being able to uh, to keep it going. And Billy Badgett, of course, deserves a, a tremendous amount of credit. We've talked about that so many times that uh, I mean, he literally like you know begged to keep this going, and and he did, and and he provided a template for other tracks all over the country that copied 
what Gulfstream did, and they they said, "Hey, they're doing it successfully here. Let's do it there." And, and that that honestly is is uh, you know something that racing should be indebted to him for forever for. But like I said, we were having thirty four thousand horses born a year, thirty four, thirty four, thirty four, thirty four, and now it's eighteen, 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 and you know there just aren't as many horses. But we've only cut down. Um, you know, ten percent of the days in a lot of places. So, I, at some point, it's it, you know, we we just need to as horsemen to accept the fact that we're not going to have quite as many opportunities as we used to. And uh, you know, hopefully, we can come up with some kind of solution at Gulfstream where you know we just can take a little time here, a little time here, a little time here, a little time here. I mean, honestly, if if you have horses and over a two week period, the horses run. Uh, and then you take a two or week two week break. Well, none of those horses were going to run back anyways. To, to, you know, take a two or three week month, you know, break. The horses that run the previous two or three weeks probably weren't running back anyways for the most part. So, uh, you know, it's just a fact of life. I mean, supply and demand. Yeah, I think we'll. You know, I'm curious to see what it looks like when we when we we lay it out. Uh, the other thought that. It, came to my mind was, you know, the summer program, our two-year-old program, you know, the breeders have their program during the summer at the Florida Stallion Stakes, you know, you know, the part the obvious pockets would be in the summertime where it's hot, you know, especially the months that it was raining and, you know, so I don't, I don't know what that does to their program. Um, um, I know that they've always, uh, Hesitated, they never wanted to run uh, it past September 30th, meaning their Florida Stallion Stakes series. Right. Um, so uh, it'll be it'll be interesting, Chuck. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, per- yeah. I me mean, personally, I, I I think that the way they do the Florida Stallion series is is very very much outdated. Number one, they need to have grass races. I mean, ignoring the fact that 50 or 60 percent of our races are on the turf. Uh, is a mistake and like you said uh, uh you know they want to end september 30th well we're in an era now where most two-year-olds haven't even aren't even that close to starting in, in august or september so uh you know to me it, it, the money could be used uh, in a more efficient manner by them but you know they're like you said they it's their call and it's their money but um uh it's it's uh you know it, it's a new day people don't i mean in the old days you would see at Keeneland in April, the two-year-old races would have 12 every race. And it wasn't just uh, like it is now where it's Wesley Ward and, uh, you know, six guys you don't hurt, you never heard of, right? I mean, it was um, all the big trainers started their horses there. Summer Squall broke his maiden in a two-year-old race going four and a half furlongs to Keeneland. And now, like, no one would even consider it. Hell, half the horses haven't even been, you know, made their way to the barn. Uh, they're still, they're still uh, in the hands of the two-year-old consigners. The, the, you know, they haven't even had the, the April sale at OBS or the, the Timonium sale. So, uh, you know, it's a different world. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can find some common ground and, and just, you know, utilize our money in our purse money and, and our dates in the, the, the optimal fashion. And, you know, I guess that's not the easiest thing to get everyone to agree upon. But, uh, you know, at this point, we, we, we can't rely on... Uh, and, and we, honestly, Steve, and, and this is a point I've tried to make to, to some of the northern trainers before when they complain about purses. I said, guys, we don't really get much money from the slots. And yes, we don't want to see that 20% uh, you know, go. Obviously, it's, it's 20%. I said, but when you look at a place like Parks, 90% of their purse comes from slots. If it's a $47,000 purse... Well, forty-two thousand of it came from the slots, so you know, like <laughs> it, was, it was always the thing that, that you know we we didn't we have a casino here, but it, it wasn't you know it's it's different. I mean, you look at Kentucky, and then you look at uh, you know Naira Naira's got a casino, you know Aqueduct, and they do uh, you know what five six seven billion dollars a year in handload this place it's in new york city you know and, and and there's no other there's there's no competition but um i was you know i was able to uh sit in when the, the they had the stakeholder permit holder meetings meeting in tallahassee i don't remember a month and a half ago 
with Governor DeSantis and uh, uh, Senate President Simpson. And at that table, uh, I think it was Pete Berube who, who uh, made, a, uh, made a statement, uh, which I, I'm, I'm sure is true, but was really su very surprising to me. He said that 55% of all purse money comes from subsidies, uh, which I found, thinking about it, it makes sense just as you just went through the numbers, Chuck. But, you know, there's something wrong with that. If our business is generating $2 billion in handle and we have to go outside to get more money outside of our, you know, our economic model, you know, something needs to change. Um, we need to... You know, we're never going to be able to sustain if we don't, you know, become vertical and rely on ourselves. And if the subsidies come in, that's great. But you know as well as I do, you know, you know, you know, uh, politicians term out, which you're seeing now, you know, ironically we're, you know, what, about 10 or 11 years outside of uh, slots being introduced in South Florida and you have a whole new group of politicians in there, and I don't think any of them even know what, why um, a lot of these slots licenses were coupled to uh, paramutual uh, permit holders. Uh, so uh, hopefully, you know, we get a nice balance here. Hopefully, uh, you know, we figure it out. We maybe tighten up some dates without a lot of damage. Uh, you know, like you said, you know, we, we do it in such a way that nobody's really losing races. We're just losing race days. Um, hopefully we work this out and get something out of the compact. Um, hopefully maybe we get lucky and it just doesn't go through. And we, we again, dodge a bullet <laughs> at yeah. the end of session. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's funny just, you know, talking about Florida politics. You said something, a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about how Florida is is basically three completely different states and you have south florida you have the orlando area and then you have the northern area the northern area is, is a rural type situation where those those areas are more like mississippi and alabama uh than they are florida and you know the the the, the central location of orlando is you know um uh, kind of a new uh, you know within the last 20 30 years there, there's you know a, a population shift there and then south florida like we're totally different than everyone else chuck i'll tell you when i was in the uh, the meeting that i referred to that the governor uh presided over all of the permit holders i shouldn't say all but a great deal of the focus was on designated player games you know actually if i if i if i <laughs> If I could have pulled my phone out, I would have Googled it because I didn't even, I didn't even know really what they were, you know. And, and you know, that's their, their mainstream up, up north. You know, Jacksonville, I mean, they're making a bundle of money on these designated player games. So right. we're really, you know, really just two different models altogether. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing. But, you know, I know it's, 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 it's just, uh, I mean, one thing about racing in general, not just racing in South Florida. Um, we often don't, we take our eye off the ball. Uh, I've said this to horsemen all over the country. As soon as your slots legislation was passed, you should have tripled your lobbying because getting it passed is fine. Keeping it is the, is the hard part. And in the end, places like here where no amount of lobbying is ever going to be able to be considered by us or, or or even Gulfstream, which is, you know, Gulfstream is a big corporation, or Churchill Downs are big corporations, and still, compared to uh, the Disney or the Seminoles, they just aren't, aren't even in the same ballpark, and, um, you know, but, but we, like you said, we have to concentrate on making our races as, as uh, bettable as possible, and, uh, you know, we have to work with the track to, to create good betting menus, to give good cards to people give people races that they want to bet on um because a lot of other tracks are, are going to struggle with some of the same things that we're going to struggle with especially in terms of horse population but it also takes the horsemen to buy in as well in that um you know we need to race our horses and when you have a horse that's fit and ready to run they need to run and everybody can't wait for the perfect spot and and that's one of the difficult things um that you do have and, and as you said before i was a trainer here and, and i had horses um, that, you know, I didn't have the best horses when I was at this point in my training career. So I, I, I really 
was trying to find spots that you know my horses literally wouldn't get embarrassed with and and it wasn't always easy and sometimes you know what you just have to run them and uh, i i won plenty of races with horses that weren't two to one because i i you know the horse was fit and you're ready to run and you put them in and and sometimes um you know we're in an era where everybody looks at win percentage and looks at this and looks at that but uh, like you said one of the advantages and disadvantages in both ways is that we we are a closed circuit here in the in the, the the summertime and that there's no tracks to ship to so we we have to find the races and and the horsemen that come here you know they've got to run and we have to work with the track to get the uh, the races that the horsemen are looking for looking to run in yeah you know chuck you know that's always you know the condition book uh you know, whether it's good or bad, you know, most of the time uh, centers around, you know, what you either own for horses or you train for horses. So I know they have a difficult difficult job um, in the racing office. I always said that it's like doing a wedding seating chart, but I think uh, we have to get smarter. You see a lot of races, like the stake we had on Saturday that, you know, fell apart. You know, we lost four horses and scratched down a four. You know, those are races where, you know, we go negative to the purse account, you know, to a great extent, you know, and, you know, so I can only hope the trainers can, you know, really give some thought about, you know, putting their horses in, uh, number one, you know, hopefully, you know, and things can happen. Horses get scratched all the time for many, many reasons that are certainly understandable, but, um and it's you're right. It's it's kind of a new a new age. You can't wait on the sidelines for the perfect race. And you know, as an owner, you know those words are hard to come out of your mouth because you know you invest in the horse, you buy it, you train it, you get it to the race, and you know your trainer tells you, "I want to run it for 25," and you know you have 50,000. So, um, but that's just the way the business is now. Yeah, it's uh, it's a competitive business, and it's uh, you know, it's 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 not easy to win races. It's so funny we talk about this on the show all the time. You know, when you see Chad Brown and Todd Pletcher, I say, remember, you're just. <laughs>